0: Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate, the show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. Scott Bitney is an interesting guy. He's confident in his work, but one of the most humble people I've ever met. He doesn't take himself seriously at all. And the first word that comes to mind when I think of him as a broker is that he's a grinder. He's an extremely tough negotiator. I would know. I've been on the other side of him on a deal before. But he also values relationships as much as anyone that I know. Writing handwritten notes and sending out gifts out of left field is not uncommon practice for him. This dynamic is what makes him so successful as a partner at Location Commercial Real Estate in St. Louis, a leading Midwestern brokerage firm. It's like he's the most interesting guy in retail real estate, especially when he tells us about he showed up to a showing one time, shirtless. You'll want to hear that story and his insight. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Scott. Scott Bitney with Location Commercial Real Estate, principal out there out of St. Louis. Appreciate you joining Limitless as I sweep my chair while I give the intro. My bad. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? I'm good. You know, this episode I'm really excited about because I think everybody wants to hear the backgrounds based on the other 11 guests that we've had so far. But for me, I'm particularly excited because I know you so well. So it's going to kind of be an interesting banter, I think, because you and I like to give each other a hard time. As I said before we went on to starting the episode though, I purposefully didn't dig too much more about you because I think it's important that we get all the genuine information out there that somebody else may have been able to dig up if I did take advantage of, of getting behind the scenes. So
1: maybe you don't know me as well as you think. Oh <laughs> uh, I actually, you know, I was thinking about
0: it while I was showering this morning of all times that I really don't. Like I, I don't know your family situation, how you grew up. So a perfect segue. Like let's get right into it. Like, where did you grow up? How are so, you, uh, what's the deal?
1: I grew up in a small town outside of St. Louis called Lake St. Louis. It's about 45 minutes outside of St. Louis. Is there a lake? Yes, there is. So my uh, dad grew up in Michigan. He was a huge water skier. He started the ski club in Lake St. Louis. It was a small community when we drove out there. So my family didn't take vacations. We just went like boating every weekend.
0: Okay.
1: So my mom was a school teacher. My dad sold heavy machinery to industrial. Equipment companies? Did he, was it his company or he worked for someone else? No, he worked for someone else. Okay. So, and then I had one brother, went to high school in town in St. Louis, and then went to college in St. Louis. So, really never left.
0: Got it. So, you really stereotypical guy from the Midwest who is literally from the, that same city and never left. Is your I brother was older old. or younger? My
1: brother is three years
0: older. Okay. What was that
1: dynamic like? He was somebody that I looked up to and We still kind of stay in touch. It's just obviously harder with families and we have very different careers. So,
0: what did he interview? i just out of curiosity.
1: He works for a company called Express Scripts. He's more of a finance guy, he's very detail oriented. I'm more of a, he paints with a a small paintbrush. I paint with a big brush. So, like if we were in the same room together and somebody was like, you guys are related.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Yeah, I can relate to that. My sister is two years older and went to MIT undergrad and PhD, and is now a software engineer at a company that builds autonomous cars. Good thing, real estate is the best thing that ever happened in the season, right? So I can totally relate to that. So you grew up in a, I would say, typical Midwestern fashion way, but right? you went to lake every weekend. So that's actually a pretty interesting dynamic. And for those who are listening as opposed to watching us, Scott's got a long, really one of the best heads of hair in the industry. Long, good flow. It's a Saturday. It's, as we talked about this, he's got his hat on I mean, he's totally a guy that comes across as he grew up on a lake. So he wouldn't be that surprised.
1: That's actually a funny story because I, I never had long hair growing up. I would never like, think about wearing long hair. And one of the guys I used to work with bet me that I couldn't wear a ponytail to the New York ICSC. And that bet started in like September, and I'm a obviously like most brokers in this business, a super competitive person. So I was like, all right. So he had to lose some weight, and I had to grow a ponytail. (laughs) So he ended up losing the weight, and I had to wear this ponytail when I was about an inch. I wore it for a day at New York ICSC. I still have a picture actually next to Jared with this ridiculous ponytail. Jared, weird, yeah. I still remember like coming down from the hotel, standing the Gansvort, and there's two very attractive European women. And I'm like, I'm standing here with a one-inch ponytail tied up in my head. <laughs> and I look absolutely ridiculous, but I'm not gonna welch on a bet.
0: Good for you. That's a man of his word. Most brokers now, I will tell you, every good broker that I've talked to and, and every person who's good in this business and a lot of the people that I've had on the show are competitive. However, a lot of the people, the vast majority in this business, really care a lot about what other people think. You clearly threw that out the window that.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm a person that what you see is what you get. I've learned over time, I'm very comfortable with myself. And I think it's important that you kind of be yourself. I think sure. the more natural you are, the more you appeal to other people. Okay. No one well, appreciates somebody who's fake. Like you can read through it. I want to make sure that. I'm a genuine person and I get
0: treated like a genuine person. And as someone who's gotten to know you very well over the last four or five years, I can totally attest to that. I, I kind of cheated on this test a little bit by knowing you better than I've, I've known a lot of my other guests so far. But I, I will say that is as genuine as true as it gets. And I don't think anybody would dispute that. So you grew up water skiing in St. Louis. I mean, and you said you were competitive. You grew up playing sports, right?
1: So I actually was a terrible athlete. So like... I was like good enough, but not like I swam in high school just because obviously growing up on a lake, you better know how to swim. So I, like, I was good at swimming, but like most other sports, I wasn't very athletic. So I think my competitive nature kind of came through business and I really didn't realize it until like looking back on it. I always had like a kind of a side gig.
0: So... Me give me some examples. Kevin Kush, for example, used to flip cars in high school, which was insane.
1: So like when I was in middle school I started cutting grass and it, it was a big deal cuz no one would trust a, like a 12 or 13 year old to cut their grass. So I got a couple lawn jobs. And then I was like I would go to school and like we never sold candy at school. So I would go to this like clubhouse that was real close to my house, buy a bunch of candy and sell it to kids at school. And I got put in detention for it because that I was for some reason the teachers didn't like the fact that I was like selling candy to other kids in the class, but I was making a fortune off it. Buy a push pop for 50 cents, I'd sell for two bucks.
0: Can you define pop for those of us who don't live in the little Midwestern bubble? And I'm, I'm giving you more well, no, time. This guy. was just like a push
1: pop. So like oh, you know I like, you meant soda. No, no, no. No. So like just candy. Got it.
0: So you had good margins? You weren't paying taxes? I mean that sounds like a good opportunity. In cash I mean, business. So I gotta what's we'll like the teacher? I mean you still must resent this teacher to this day for putting in attention potential
1: that. I would. So my mom was a teacher, so like I kind of got a little bit of a pass, but they were like, "Did you guys stop selling this candy?" Wrong
0: school, man. I like where your dad is that.
1: So I cut grass growing up, and I would say my dad like had some ups and downs in his career. And our family wasn't an allowance family, so if you wanted something, you had to go out and earn it by yourself. So I always had a job growing up. I started out cutting a few lawns, and then. I went to there's a local grocery chain. If you're from the Midwest, you'll know it, called Schnooks. And I was a bagger at Schnucks. I remember like standing there bagging groceries and I'm like, I can cut one lawn for twenty five bucks and I work five hours here. I was knows my minimum wage was
0: like five fifteen. Yeah. You know, like, I remember I used to referee eight year old basketball games when I was in high school for like five seventy five an hour. Yeah. And paying okay. taxes. I mean, that's doesn't get you like very far.
1: So I was like, "This is crazy." So I went to my dad and I said, "Hey, can I borrow some money? I want to buy a bigger lawnmower." So he lent me some money, and by the time I graduated high school, I had about forty lawns. Forty, 40 I, lawns,
0: yeah, all yeah. by yourself, or did you, or did you have people working for you? I mean, that's a another
1: guy in the neighborhood that would work with me off and right. of So living on the lake, the houses on the lake usually had lawn pump systems, so they would have free water because they would water their lawn with a lake. So the grass was shooting on. I would figure out, hey, in the neighborhood when it got dry and hot summer heat, people would be like, hey, you don't need to cut my grass this week. So I would lose that income. So I would discount the lawns that were on the lake $5 to undercut all my competition because I knew I'd get it every week. It'd be a reoccurring. So I sold that business to a local kid when I went to college. And I still regret that to this day because that was such a great cash machine and i have to ask what you sell it for not enough i think it was like a couple thousand bucks and it wasn't really enough
0: did you sell it to the kid before you went to school before you knew you were going to school in st louis
1: yes so i sold that pretty much the like we kind of struck a deal and at the end of the summer i sold them the ones and then i went off to college good for you and you went to school I went to st louis university yeah Once again, I always worked in college. So I was a doorman and bartender in college, going back to your roots there. There you go. And... job, I liked it. Yeah, I loved the job. It was a great job. I will still never forget my parents basically going to me and they're like, Hey, we're making a lot of sacrifices for you to go to St. Louis University. You probably should figure out what you're going to do after college. And that includes not working at a bar.
0: You say that. I'm going to cut you off for a second. You say that. You, you jabbed him about the bar that I used to own, somebody's in college. We actually sold it to the guy who had a degree from Alabama, who had an accounting degree and, and been a bartender ever since. He did what, his, what your parents set out to do. And now he owns the bar. And he's like, he very it. nice living in
1: Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I can assure you. Know. He is he owns the bar and he's not working at the
0: bar. Right. Exactly. In theory, he could pay himself what we were paying him and take all the cash flow from it. It's pretty nice living, especially it in a town is- like that. So I had to throw the the back at you use. But real quick, why you brought up your parents? I'm, I'm sorry, we're jumping around a little bit. I haven't heard much about your mom. Your dad sold the supplies. What, what did your mom, what about your mom? Like, so
1: my mom was a school right. teacher. Oh, that's right. That's right. Super dedicated teacher. I mean, I still remember her waking up at three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning to grade papers. She was always a stern, but firm mom, but she was kind of the rock of our family. My dad traveled... Monday through Thursday every week, and my mom was always on. And now having kids, that makes me realize how much she was doing and holding it together. When I was growing up, my mom's brother got diagnosed with cancer. She was a caretaker for him, and, you know, still hung on, like still with my dad traveling a bunch. So she's obviously somebody that I admire very much and just
0: think the world of, especially now. More than anything, wow! So you mentioned your parents giving you a hard time for being that door guy at a bar near SLU. What changed after that?
1: So I kind of realized that I probably should figure out how I'm going to get a job after college. Yep. And I got a high rise at a building in Clayton called the Plaza in Clayton, and it's basically the who's who of St. Louis. lived in this high rise, and I was the door guy slash valet. The only shifts they had were Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I'd work a 14-hour shift on Friday, 13 on Saturday, 12 on Sunday. Because I was making good money at the bar and I was accustomed to making good money at the bar. So I still wanted to work and I could afford my class hours to be that way. And I was like, hey, at the end of the time, when I graduate college, maybe somebody in this
0: building will give me a job. So did Uh, you continue to work at the bar and...
1: No. Yeah, so I put the bar nice. together and just solely worked on this condominium. Oh, yeah. Got it. So what wow, happens next? Nice. So I befriended a, one of the guys, a younger guy in the building, and he at the time worked for a company called THF Realty. And THF Realty, and actually THF Realty owned the plaza and Clayton, they built it. And for those of you who don't know what Jeff Realty is, it's a, it was a JV partnership between Stan Kroenke and Mike Stamber.
0: So, Can you tell us a little bit
1: about Stan and Mike. You know, Stan and Mike were, I would say, very prolific private developers. Stan is a very successful developer. Even before THF, he married Ann Walton, and he owns Ann Walton is in Walmart. Just so, right. just so the audience understands. Right. And you know, Stan owns, in addition to real estate, several sports teams: Denver Nuggets, the Los, now Los Angeles Rams. Denver Avalanche, Arsenal, the lacrosse and soccer teams for Denver. Everything from wineries to cattle. It's a little bit of everything. And, and in addition Mike, to A massive real estate portfolio. Correct. Got it. And, and Mike it. was his partner for a long period of time and basically developed a lot of shopping centers in conjunction with Stan all over the country. They were as close as you get to a Walmart preferred developer, just building stuff all over the country. So great relationship. So I ended up befriending a guy who lived in the building who worked for THF. And he decided to break off to another company that was another break off of THF Realty called Retail Realty. And one day he pulled up and he's like, Hey, you want a job? And I was like, of course. He's a younger guy living in a great condo complex. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And frankly, I'd have a lot of other prospects at the time. So I was like, why not? I majored in marketing and HR management in college. I won one HR management interview after college and I was like, I think I made a huge career mistake. Like, I don't know if I could do this. <laughs> and marketing jobs just I live in St. Louis. If I want a good marketing job, I need to move to a bigger city. Right. So I ended up getting hired at retail Realty And we would go around the country, build Walmart centers, and I would lease small shop space and restaurant out parcels and assist on the junior box stuff, just kind of in a learning capacity and. That Dude, was- funny, you got
0: into the business in you know, a sort of backwards, the same way that I did. I interned at a sports agency one summer in Atlanta, and my buddy, young guy, five years older, he's a family friend. So we didn't like grow up; his friends were not very close today. Lived in this high rise condo building in the middle of Buckhead in Atlanta, which is like a phenomenal part of town. I just asked him one day, I'm like, what do you do, man? Like, I don't understand. If like, you're like 26, 27, you live in this beautiful condo, like tell me about it. And it's like, you see these shopping centers around here, at least for a company that owns shopping centers. So it's, it's, it's funny to the bar connection leading to that. Like, it's interesting. We have more parallels than I even knew about. So you get the job with retail realty. Just so we're very clear, you're working in-house for a developer, there's no brokerage arm per se, right? You, you are a landlord leasing agent in-house. Great. Got it you were working from where-to-where geographically, roughly?
1: I think our farthest away projects were probably three and a half hours away from St. Louis.
0: Okay. So the heartland States, we'll
1: call it. Yeah. Anything that touched Missouri that they were doing stuff in. Cool. And what year is this, roughly? Just to put it in perspective? This is in 05. Got it. The world's on fire. Oh, I mean, I thought it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, we would build a Walmart center and we'd have it fully leased. You would do a fashion bug deal. You would do a Maurice's... Dollar Tree, Payless, a check casher,
0: Dollar Duty, GNC, the Mexican restaurant—you're yeah. done. That's it. I was like, "This is great,"
1: and I knew nothing about construction. So, like, we were a small group. So, you—you you got in the weeds very quickly. You sat in the construction meetings, and I remember just sitting there and being like, "They're talking about HVAC and, and electrical panels," and I'm like, "I have no idea what the hell they're talking about." And I approached an, an architect after the meeting. Who was always very willing to offer help. And I was like, James, you have to help me understand what the hell this stuff actually means. So you had an inspiration to want to learn it. You're inspired. Right. That. Yeah. So I didn't want to just sit here like a bump of the log and just take notes. I, I wanted to kind of understand and kind of dig deep to really figure out what makes sense. Hmm. So times are good, times are great. And then all of a sudden, Walmart stopped developing prior to 08, They kind of put the brakes on the the larger super center development. We were gonna pivot to more of a lifestyle developer.
0: That did not work out well. So trial and error, or you tested the waters of maybe doing it and decided not to.
1: I guess a backup. So when I worked for retail, really they kind of had a partnership sweat. So there was a new company called Pacific Development. That Pacific Development wanted to get into lifestyle center development. We tried to put together one or two things. And they never took off. So essentially, we. Sounds like it was for the better. Yeah. And, and I think looking back on it, it just wasn't us. We were small town, kind of gritty people. When you started a lifestyle development back then, it was the. You had to get Coldwater Creek, Talbot's, Chico's, White House, Black Market. We had none of those relationships. We were used to dealing with Cato and Fashion Bug and Maurice's. Mm. So. Long story short, 08-09 happens, and Pacific kind of pivots, and I decide to look for a new job. And I get a job at a company called Gundaker Commercial, which is a Grubb and Ellis affiliate in St. Louis, doing brokerage, doing brokerage. And it was run by a gentleman, the owner of Gundaker Commercial, was a guy named Gordon Gundaker. He was a very successful residential real estate company that pivoted into commercial, and. They were kind of in a a tough spot. Their retail team had recently left. And the product that they had was... Putting it fair would be like an upgrade. And the gentleman who ran the company, he had a bank background. So he would do deep dives in people's financials. And want letters of credit. And this is 0809. Like People have no... Like, and the product that you're
0: releasing just to reclaim his dog shit?
1: Terrible. Like I mean, there was one center that was half built. And to this day, it's still not built. So we were releasing the other half. And then there's also like a strip center in the middle of a 30-acre development that was built and the anchor is like bailed. So we just had this random strip center in the middle of the field off the beaten path. Because
0: the synergy was really going to be—that's a tough combo, right? Because you can have tough products, and that's okay. But you got to be willing to make deals on it. And when the decision makers are, you know, people who are investing tenants, financials, because that's their background and that's what they're experts at. It's almost like they should be working on different products, or there needs to be some sort of divorce or separation between the product type and the analysis of finding tenants. I mean, I remember coming out of the recession when I was first getting started. I literally had tenants taking selfies of cash underneath their mattress as their <laughs> financials. And that's what had to get deals done. Now, albeit the landlord wasn't putting in a ton of TI into the deals, but like, sometimes you got to get a little down and dirty and just give it a whirl. Like, dude, cut that ass's deal. And I remember like the, the idea back coming out of the recession was, okay, is the investment into the HVAC system of $5,000 worth it for this deal? Like it wasn't considered a capital cost by a lot of people at that time. Like, we may lose our $5,000 to invest in the AC, which today it's just like that's part of the outfit. Like, that's not how this
1: works. I was in that same scenario. Everything was factored in, whether it was some of these spaces were shell spaces. And he was looking at it from, well, I'm providing all this work. And it's like, well, you typically have to do this for anybody. But it was just an extra layer. I look back on it and it's a learning experience. I mean, it's leasing good stuff. It's hard, but it's not as hard as leasing like terrible stuff. I mean, you have some good stuff sprinkled in there. I mean, you were in brokerage, so in theory, you could have worked on whatever you wanted. No, so like, I was hired by this company to lease their product and focus on leasing their product. They paid me a small salary to focus on that product, and then in addition, brokerage. And I came over with the guy who initially hired me and another young guy, and we were like a three-person team. And I probably made the worst business deal of my entire life because we agreed to split all of our commissions. And the guy who brought me into the business was going through a tough period in his life, and he really just wasn't working. So I was, in addition to this, whatever deal that I made, I was splitting it and I was getting a smaller percentage, and it was just a bad move. But it, listen, sometimes those falls in, in life kind of make you figure out how to get up and run faster. So. Where did you come to that realization? It took me about a year to be like, hey, this isn't for me. And frankly, I was making no money.
0: Define no money if you can.
1: I was making about 36000 bucks. Got it. And it was a point in my career where I was like, hey, all my buddies were accountants or successful in their jobs, making you know, double what I'm making. I, I kind of came to my point. I'm like, hey, should I really be doing this? Like I, I'm not seeing the return on investment. And I was like, I'm gonna give it one last shot and I, I'm gonna start looking for other options. Well, so, I'm not to you for a second here, right? Because weren't you
0: making pretty good money coming right out of school in 05, 07 with Realty, with the retail realty guys? I gotta pay the salary there as well. I got paid more, but I gotta
1: pay the salary. So I never reaped the true benefits of that uptick run of the O five, oh six, oh seven. Mm -hmm. Because I was paying my dues by learning.
0: Got it. Yeah, bad timing there. Right. So before we get to hear about what you decide to do next, now that you're four or five years into your career at this point, you got to give us an embarrassing story from when you first got started. (laughs) And I know you. I know you're not going to hold back, which I genuinely appreciate. And I think our listeners genuinely appreciate it.
1: So this goes back to... I was not making a lot of money and I had a Chevy Blazer car that I had all throughout college and even when I had my lawn business. So we actually developed a project in my hometown and my AC went out April 1st. So I'm like, ah, I really don't have the money to replace my AC. I'll just gut it out. Like, How bad can the summer be? So it got pretty hot. I made the awful mistake of like liking blue shirts, which is when you have no AC, it's terrible. So I would go out, about a half an hour before a showing, roll down all my windows and drive my shirt off and like dress slacks and have my shirt hanging in the back. (laughs) I I will never forget. I met one guy out there and he was early as well. So I show up, (laughs) shirt off, toweling off in the parking lot, and I'm putting on my dress shirt and he's looking at me like, who are you? So... There's my embarrassing story.
0: That's up there, Scott. (laughs) That's a good one. Some pretty good pit stains over the first uh, few years of your career too, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good. So something that's not as funny. It's 2000... What are we in? 2010 at this point when you're doing brokerage on what's called a tough, shitty product. Yeah. What happens there? What goes on in your head next? I'm basically trying to figure out,
1: hey, what's next up in my life? I was like, I really need to figure out how I either stay in this business or I pivot. And I was approached by a guy in St. Louis. And he's like, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a landlord representation team. I've heard a lot about you. I'd love to sit down with you. And I I was dancing with him. And my big thing at that point in my life was, I need a mentor. I need somebody who's really going to teach me this business so I can go from where I am today to the next level. So he calls me, we dance, we're talking. And I'm about... Eighty-five percent there, and then I get a call from another guy in St. Louis who's currently my business partner. He's like, "Hey, I think I'm going to join the St. Louis company, the L3 Corporation." And at that point, I'm sold
0: because I was like, We're clear, the the first guy and the second guy were going to the same, or going to already own the same place."
1: Correct. So the company dynamic for me changed. I had a great mentor with tenant representation, which I just started to get into. And I had a great landlord mentor with landlord representation. And for me, that was like, if I was going to really be successful in this business, I needed to become a student of the game again. So I think that that was a big turning point in my career. And obviously, probably the biggest turning point in my career. That was your great break? Yeah. This was in 2010?
0: I guess, you made it. is that about right?
1: Yeah, that's about right.
0: Okay. So you joined L3 in 2010. I'm starting to get more intimate with what happens next, but I have to know some of the answers. But I did not know you back in 2010. So tell me what this first few, like, few years are like. You know, it's great that you had great mentors. And, and I'll just go ahead and say Ian and Craig, right? Ian yeah. Something. Ian Silverman and, and Craig Walensky. Just because you have great mentors doesn't mean the market's strong. Doesn't mean you're just somebody just going to give you deals. Tell us about this first few years in the height of the recession, making a company switch with no client list, right? I mean, did you bring anything with you?
1: I had a few listings that I brought with me. Not a lot. That was probably the biggest learning curve of starting a landlord representation company. You tenants at the time? I represent Cato and Hibbins and a couple others, but small tenants. I think the big thing was, I was reinvigorated by the new opportunity. I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. And I was like, I'm gonna go on. It's a new start. I'm fresh. But St. Louis had some very good brokerage houses. So we were definitely kind of up against the ropes. But I think that having a new face and somebody... And we had the opportunity of time to work on something a lot more than other people. Our biggest competitor had 80 listings. You know, when we have 5, we're going to dig in deep. It's fine we too. Is it was just you, Ian and Craig at that point? So there's another guy named Jay Cohen there. But Jay typically did tenant representation. So God. the four of us, and frankly, Craig was doing national tenant representation with Petsmart and Golf Galaxy at the time. Basically, E and I on the landlord stuff.
0: Yeah, and Craig certainly was keeping the lights on. I'd imagine with the, those big box tenant retail. Deals. Sure, there was probably less of them, but
1: there yeah, was... it was challenging times. But we ramped up quickly. We hired a guy who I worked with at and then Kevin Shapiro. Probably about a year after we started. And then a couple years after that, we hired another guy named Alex Apter, who you know, and then continued to kind of grow from there. And the kind of last, most recent hire was Mike Pettit. So we grew a team, and then the work just continued to kind of come. And we were one of the things that we were able to do, and it's kind of our company philosophy: is it's have gun, will travel. So we will go to the town that other people don't work or want to work in. And be very successful. We did a center early on in a town called Russellville, Arkansas. I was working with a Witch Witch franchisee in Springfield, Missouri, and, and they wanted to go down to Northwest Arkansas. And I met a guy who at the time worked for DDR in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I was just working when we were trying to show showing the space. And I was like, hey, do you guys ever do third-party listings? Do you have anything that is really, you're really struggling with? And he's like, yeah, I got this center in Russellville, Arkansas. I can take a look at it. So, we Ian and I drove there on our way back to St. Louis. We ended up getting the listing. And at the time, it was a JCPenney, Belk, Hobby Lobby, and TJ Maxx just signed in the goodie space, which okay. was a big deal because really that was when TJ Maxx first started doing small towns. So, I'm like, this center is like from our Walmart experience, you, you kind of got to know like, what made up a good town. Like yeah. you can go into a small town, and like get the feel pretty quick. So we ended up taking on the listing in the center, and we did a Petsmart deal, Shukarni deal, and Ross deal, and it actually got turnaround center of the year for DDR. And it was looking back on it early on was a huge accomplishment. And we they ended up giving us other listings in other areas, just basically based on that
0: performance. So your big break job was the the, the jump over to L three, but the big break deal which ended up turning into a domino effect, was picking up the DDR listing down in Russellville. Correct. That's what I love about, and something I've always been jealous of, because I've never spent time on the brokerage side, but like, you went down to Russellville, Arkansas for a, I love Witch, Witch This is no disrespect to Witch, Witch But at the end of the day, it's a 1,400 square foot tenant. It's not like these are big fees, but you service your client the correct way. One thing leads to another. You start getting active, doing deals in this, at the time, probably felt like a super tertiary market. And that tenant roster is strong. I don't care where it is. And I'm sure that's probably the bullseye of that particular trade area. And there's validity to that market now as a result of the work that you did. And equally, if not more important, it helps you kind of pick up on a pattern and understand how these secondary and tertiary markets work that other people aren't paying attention to. And ultimately you're doing what's at the core of your business, which is creating an extreme amount of value that frankly other people aren't willing to or just can't do.
1: We did that early on. I would say... I mean, part of it, I kind of learned at Gundaker was I couldn't compete in St. Louis. There were 5 other brokerage shops that were better, Mm -hmm. but nobody wanted to drive outside the city. And that's where I excelled. I mean, I turned in a... One of the cars I turned in had 385,000 miles on it. And (sighs) I would just just drive. And I get to learn these markets and I got smarter over time. My mantra now is I don't come home until I have a deal. Like when I go out in the road, I am coming home with a deal. There is going to be some type of money I'm going to make.
0: You got to give us more than that. Elaborate. What does that mean? What is your definition of a deal? It's not like somebody that signed to canvas somebody one day and then got, you know, held a gun to their head and signed a lease later that afternoon.
1: No, I mean, I guess it's more the prospect of having a deal. So, like, I don't know if it's going to be, but in my mind, I'm going to tell myself, hey, this is going to be a deal. Like, whether it's a, uh, we do a lot of work with Dollar Tree. Like, I was driving last night. And I'm like, hey, I got one more town in me. I haven't found my deal yet. I'm going to drive another 10, 15 minutes. I'm going to try to figure out one more deal. Or just when I go out and prospect, it's like, hey, what am I not thinking of that could be an opportunity for one of my centers? I think a lot of times we get caught up in just one center that we're targeting and cold calling for. And it's like, beyond big picture, what else? Having and driving all these places, part of your credibility comes from the perspective of knowing a lot of small markets and other markets. And, you know, my wife hates me because, like, when we go on vacation, I'm like, hey, let's go drive a couple shopping centers. She's like, we're on vacation. What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's right off the trip, somehow, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, exactly. It affords you that vacation as well. That's why I always... Yeah, my man
0: Scott, you guys, I've spent a number of long hours and random time with my man Scott. And, and that's yielded you know, a lot of windshield time. And I can tell you, he's no different than me. He loves a good deal. loves a good opportunity. Whether it's he gets excited, just uh, from the reward points with the rental car company all the way up to the, <laughs> the conditions associated with the box deal. It's fun.
1: That's what drives me is there's never a day that I wake up and I'm like, oh, I have to go to work. I get so excited to go to work, and it's funny. It's like a it's a pitfall of mine. But like I have anxiety on Sunday because like I I like I'm like oh I got all the stuff that I need to do. I'll send myself some emails, but I think I have a very envious position because as you go on in your life, people are unhappy with their job, and I know that because I lived it at one point in my life. I can honestly tell you that I wake up every day so thankful that i love my job and i can just come in and just hammer through it
0: it's the best you know i was at my parents house for dinner last night and i whipped out my tablet and then started firing out a few emails or whatever and my dad was like oh i'm so sorry you have to work i'm like i tell you this every time dad like i know it's a four-letter word but like i love working i love work like i, like I love what i do i can and that passion i know it, it, you more than I think that's probably why we connect so well because it's not inappropriate for us to call each other on what others would deem off hours. And I, and I picked up on this and I'm going to throw you under the bus a little bit here. When I was working at Ted, we you were leasing a couple of centers with us and you call me at like 7 o'clock. And I, I was like, this guy always calls me at 7 o'clock. I called him earlier at 11 and he's calling me back at 7. Why is he doing this? And it finally, I don't know why, but it just clicked. I was like, he knows I'm going to answer, he knows I'm willing to talk to him then. So why waste the eleven to two hours or the good hours on me when he can be talking to a retailer who, or another landlord rep or lender, whoever it may be, that's more you know within the nine to five realm, which is totally okay too, I guess. The, the message that I'm trying to relay is: do you? Who cares what other people say?
1: You can kind of hit the nail on the head. You got to know your people, <laughs> so you got to know who the guy's going to pick up. You can kind of feel it out. Like there are a couple clients that I like. Have long text conversations with it, like eleven o'clock or midnight, just because I know I can have undivided attention there. It's funny because, like, just the small things. Like, think about like I'm in the Midwest, I'm on Central Time, my seven o'clock, you're eight o'clock. I wake up early. Yeah, You're I got you out your your like, Yeah, I, I can hit you right away. First thing, you're fresh. I'm on you. And then you also know the people who work late. You know, I learned that early on in cold calling of calling that person at a random time, I would stay till 8 or 9 o'clock because sometimes that guy on Pacific or East Coast time that picks up his phone at 7.30 that's working late that I can call a thousand times from 9 to 5 never picks up.
0: Right. When you have an instant connection with someone like that too. Yeah. They're like, wow, this guy's a grinder too. Yeah. That's why we're doing this on Saturday. I like that. (laughs) Scott, you asked me to do it then. I was like, actually, I prefer that. worked out well. So going back to your story here, because I think everybody wants to know. So you guys built up the team at L3 over the course of 2010 to... You said Mike was the most recent hire. I know he was around when I started at PEV, which was in 2016. So kind of that core group of guys picked up over a six or seven-year period. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's about right.
0: So Mm -hmm. over the course of that time, there's certainly company success that occurs there your Rolodex and your client list was... Let's call it like it was. It was weak in 2010, I would say. Especially for someone who's made it so far in their career to make it on this wonderful podcast. What happened? I mean, talk about... And I know this is uncomfortable for you. We're sort of... Other than the DDR story, I mean, what other big things happened to you? Because your tenant list today is like insane. So you went from zero tenants, basically, other than Hibit and Kato to, to what over that course. And if you're able to set some chronological lighting, they great, but I know it's a lot. I know your client list is
1: pretty intense. A couple of things. So I worked with a company called Total Hockey, which was a local St. Louis company. And it was run by one guy. And I approached him and I said, Hey, would you ever consider a master broker type relationship? At that time, he only had stores in St. Louis and Chicago. But he was talking about going to... DC, Philadelphia, Boston, and some other markets. So he ended up affording me the opportunity to do this. We built a great relationship. We went to Detroit as well. And Craig helped me with finding brokers in those areas because he had prior relationships there over the years. Sure. And I'm a young kid at this point. How old were you at that time? 32 years old. And I'm way over my skis here. I'm seeing a guy in the cars with the guy. Rare of your skis. Rare of your skis. Yeah,
0: correct. Awesome. So, the, pun, the pun was right there for you.
1: Yeah. So because it was kind of a tough time period, I worked with guys who should have been working on this account. So I worked with a gentleman in, in Philadelphia named Steve Nigman. Steve's a tremendous broker. Handles Target, Ahold, like just an unbelievable. He's a partner at Metro. Worked with a which, which
0: For those of you who aren't familiar with Philly and that that northeastern region metro is they're a heavy hitter there, no other way of putting it. And he's a partner there, right? You said yeah. Yeah. So preeminent guy, yeah. preeminent shop. job. But uh, it's not of the recession. So preeminent yeah, you work with them. And he would probably throw it because he had a new client coming into town.
1: Correct. I got to know these markets, and it was so great to basically drive these other markets, see how somebody else toured, see their materials just kind of understand what's going on. And then in addition, I started to go to more ICSC shows. So typically I'd only gone to the Midwest show, which was Chicago. And there was like a local one with either being Kansas City or St. Louis. So I say, hey, I want to expand my horizons here. I'm going to start going to the Dallas ICS. Craig went down there because he's a master broker for Petsmart. I joined him on a couple of times. And it got me outside of my box of St. Louis. So I started to befriend people and and started to really focus on those Northeast relationships and and South relationships. And I would go to these markets and I'd just drive. And I'd say, hey, maybe I formulate a list, whether it be in the Northeast or South, and I'd call these tenants and be like, hey, if you're ever looking to come to St. Louis, I'd love to work with you. And... I would get some smaller tenants, but probably the big tenant that kind of switched a lot of things for me was when I got the Academy business. <coughs> a little bit of luck. My biggest competitor in the market was working with Dick Sporting Goods. And the guy who I was the Academy rep, I did a deal with him on Tuesday morning. And he's like, Listen, you were always great to me when I was at Tuesday morning. And some people have the chip on their shoulder because I was the Tuesday morning rep and we, our deals weren't that great. And he gave me a shot.
0: I don't think that's lucky, by the way. I appreciate your humility, but that's not luck. I mean, treating people the right way and having the wherewithal and the instincts to know that I'm not saying you can compete, I mean, these are facts. Retailers switch companies. Guys go from Aspen to Starbucks to Walmart and everywhere in between. And you knew that. I know you knew that. And, and I don't need to ask you that question. And by just treating people the right way, you never know where they're going to end up and look at where it led you. So now you're, now you're running around town representing a 62,000 or whatever it was, whatever their product, north of 60,000-square-foot, big-box, 40-good retailer that a lot of landlords, especially at that time, really wanted in their shopping centers, especially when Dix was already in the market or passed on their site.
1: Yep. So in the tenant rep game, it's about credibility. So sometimes it's like, Hey, who, who else do you work with? That's just as important as what else you bring to the table. Sure. And that was a hard thing to
0: overcome initially. What was your mix like of tenants that you were representing at the time
1: prior to the It was all small town tenants, like very random, nothing like... That was a game changer
0: for
1: you. Oh, absolutely. And the great thing about working with Craig was he taught me kind of the nuances, type A personality, the details were everything. And I still believe that to this day. Like I can overanalyze the hell of how I tour, but... You have one day or two days with that person to show them why this site makes sense. You better be there at the right time, come in the right way, know everything and anything about that center, because you got one shot. And those details, it's funny, because like that's the great thing about working on both sides of the table on landlord and tenant representation, because I think both sides of the table don't get enough credit for what they do.
0: People uh, don't appreciate brokers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, not as much as we'd like. But there's a lot that you do when you're a great tenant rep broker. And learning that over time and continue to learn that over time. Our business constantly is changing. Like, I think it's interesting where I've seen it evolve in my career where the head of real estate made the decisions. And then it went to the head of operations. Yeah. And... Frankly, I see the future as the chief technology saying, hey, analytics says the dot is here. We need to be here. So that continuing to change and that cycle continue to change is going to be key. And how you adapt to that is going to be...
0: Guys, he's offering up some pretty cutting-edge information for free here. I would strongly recommend, uh, if you haven't fallen asleep up to this point in the podcast, to take a few notes on that. Reverting back to your time at L3. So you pick up Academy. (laughs) And some other big box retailers, I guess I gave away the answer to the test, but and, and other... We'll, we'll call them prominent national retailers that really any tenant rep, rep broker with the pulse would want, like the Chases of the World and, and some of the others, come into your, your client list. You know, This happens over the course of 2015-16 through... When did you pick up Academy? Was it 2016? Is that right? Probably a little early, like 14-15. Okay. And you pick up some of the other big guys. Who, who have I not mentioned over that course over the next three or four years? Who have I not mentioned? At Home, Chase Bank, Discount Tire, Shoe Carmel, Joanne. Yeah, Strongness. So at this point, you're now humming. I mean, you've built up a, a nice team. Of course, you don't own L3, but you're considered a leader within the organization for helping bring in some of the key guys like Mike and Alex after and, and Kevin and some of those guys. And, and you guys have a really successful run. You individually have a phenomenal run. And you've got the ideal broker business, meaning Scott Bitney as his own entity. What happens next? What happens from 2016 to today? And sort of what, what are your thoughts on the success that you've been able to have? And
1: so about a year ago we started location and it was essentially just a transition period. Craig was looking to slow down and I'm a younger guy and Ian's in the middle of Craig and I's age. So we thought it best to kind of part ways and and, and because we really wanted to grow the business. We want to grow and continue to expand the business. So we started this this company a little over a year ago. And it's been challenging, but a ton of fun. But you look back on it, it's hard being an owner, but it's exciting at the same time. And I think the biggest thing is you stop thinking about yourself As a single broker, and you start thinking about
0: how can we all be better? And other headaches, I'm sure that you didn't realize that you were signing up for, like, oh, our website needs to be improved, or this person's having an HR issue, or what are we going to do about our quarterly taxes? Like things that you probably, I mean, sure, you had some exposure to because you were 1099, right? Before you, you were an independent contractor, but. If you had some exposure and they've been multiplied by how big is the organization? How many guys do you have at the How
1: many people? So we have 7 brokers and we have 4 admins.
0: Right. We got 11 mouths to feed plus their families at this point. Yeah. So what challenges have been the most exciting about that? Because a lot of people that listen to this show, I mean, let's just put it out there. They're all thinking about... Everybody wants to go on their own one day, or at least a lot of them. What are some of the plugs and thoughts and keys that they should be thinking about that are both exciting and to the contrary it may make them think twice about doing it? Because entrepreneurship is cool and sexy right now. It may not be in five years, especially after this whole COVID situation Who the hell knows? So everybody wants to be an owner,
1: but I think, like you said, there's a lot that running the day to day, nobody sees. Nobody sees like the hours that you spend on your employee manual or Independent contract agreement or negotiating your insurance rates. And I'm a deal junkie. That, in my opinion, is miserable, but it's part of being an owner and you have to step that up. I think that the great thing is you can also guide your vision more as an owner. It's kind of your baby that, hey, where do you want to take this thing? I think that that's kind of the most exciting thing is thinking about. Tomorrow and the day after, and figure out where we want to go. Obviously, these times recently have been challenging. But how do we double down and figure out how we're still around and make this a brand? So I think it's really important to to not focus. Listen, we're all individual brokers, so we all have that mentality of like an us or a, like a, a me mentality. But if you think about some of the prominent firms, that brand is so powerful. So. How do we build that brand and take it to the next level?
0: Yeah. And I think I'm fortunate. We've had a little bit of exposure to that on Limitless. I'm really... David Burberry obviously comes to mind on what he was obviously instrumental in building with the Shopping Center Group. And there's just so little doubt in my mind that location and what you guys are doing there will eventually be whatever you guys, you and Ian and the rest of the team collectively decided to become. And I cannot wait to be a first-hand witness and maybe even get some inside scoop on what's happening before the rest of the world hears about it. And there's no doubt in my mind that you'll get there, but we do have to uh, continue to make sure that the world knows that you're human as well. So what are your weaknesses? How do you navigate them? So Especially that you're like, an entrepreneur in addition to being a broker.
1: I think a work-life balance is one of my biggest weaknesses. Good, bad, or indifferent. I don't really have any hobbies. But I think that you have to kind of Decompress and take away. I got two young kids now. I need to make sure that that's an important key in my life. And trying to run a business and be a great husband and dad is hard. And I think, you know, I travel a ton, I'm on the road, and I look back to, frankly, my upbringing and say, I need to be around
0: more. So has COVID been a, a blessing in disguise in that
1: respect? 100%. I can't tell you how much time I've spent with my kids when we were barbecuing for lunch, just hanging out with them in the middle of the day, taking 30 minutes to an hour to go swing on the swing or go play baseball or something like that.
0: It's been great. That's great, man. I'm excited for you to do that. All right. So we're starting to get into a little bit... If you couldn't tell by the last question, and I know you're an experienced listener of the show, which I greatly appreciate. We are going to start hitting you with a little bit more rapid-fire questions. They're rapid-fire in a sense, but I expect good answers. From you, they're skipping out. So, what's the craziest deal you have ever worked on?
1: So, I did a deal in Joplin, Missouri. I was leasing a center for Kimco, and we had a former 11,000 square foot shoe carnival out parcel. And I've been trying to get a hold of this group based out of Texas called Cavenders, which is a Western wear company. The guy who ran Cavenders' real estate department is Mike Cavenders. He's one of the three brothers who now run the company. And I've been trying to hunt this guy down forever. I thought it'd be perfect for the space. I went down to Fort Smith, Arkansas, cold call him, and I got to know his manager pretty well. And since Mike did not work in the corporate office, he was always on the road or traveling. And so one day, I'm driving back to St. Louis. It's about Friday at 2 o'clock. And I get a call from the store manager and he's like, Hey, Mike's coming. He'll be at the store in two hours. I'm like, I'm like, do I turn around? Do I not turn around? Of course, they turn around. Yeah, so I drive of back to Fort Smith, Arkansas. Yeah, you're an addict. <laughs> <laughs> and There's nothing wrong with Matthew that. And Mike, we strike a deal, and then this huge tornado, devastating tornado, drop one. That's huge right, drop one. Yeah, I you know. sure. and like I've been working the shit out of this box. Like it was almost too big to split. You really needed one user. I was getting all these phone calls in Vegas from like people that I'd been cold calling forever. Like, I want a spot in Joplin. I want a spot in Joplin. I want to be in your center. And I'm like, what's going on? And I realized over the course of the day, this huge F5 tornado had hit Joplin. And we were one of the last remaining centers that was still standing. So I built a great... While you're at the Vegas ICSC? While we're at the Vegas ICSC. Well, perfect time.
0: It's like, yeah, all the listening brokers out there are like, Talk about ironic—the few days that you actually may not want a ton of calls on your sites because you're not able to be as responsive, and here's your phone blowing up. And I don't mean sound insistent. that was the least of the world's problems at that particular point in time.
1: Correct. But I'd built a great rapport with Mike, and we were pretty much at the finish line. And at some point, I'm kind of like, "This deal might not happen because Kimco's getting a great offer." And Kimco stood by the deal. Kudos to them. And they—it was a, I would say, a fair deal. I think a lot of the other deals were shorter-term deals, but they stood by the deal. He's still there today. And I actually ended up working with Mike and we've probably done 30 deals together.
0: Just overall so clear, you became Mike's broker.. Okay. Unbelievable. Crazy deal. Tornado almost gets in the way of it. And kudos to my friends at Kimco, too. That's awesome that they did that. They could have easily pulled the plug and... Gone.
1: Those are the type of things that you remember for a long time. That's- yeah, for sure. You want to know what else you
0: remember a long time? Your handwritten notes. <laughs> Scott's a uh, big time handwritten note guy. I've gotten obviously through the freshman forum thing that I, I've been co-hosting with Beth where you know, I've gotten a lot of handwritten notes as of recently, but really prior to that, there's only a few people in the business that send those out and Scott is one of them. So so it's funny that you bring up those are the things that people remember. And obviously you do the handwritten notes for a reason because I still remember mine to this day from you. Advice for someone trying to get into the business or has been in the business for less than 5 years, speaking of, of the freshman form stuff. So what do you recommend for the young and upcoming hustlers? Probably 2 biggest pieces. I would say be knowledgeable
1: and, and read a lot. Whether it's online, read the newspaper every day, a national newspaper every day. Know what's going on in the area that you're working. Or frankly, nationally. There's a lot that's changing in our business right now.
0: Every day, man, I get the retail blast. This retailer's filing, this retailer restructuring, this landlord's not paying their note. I get it. You're absolutely and, right.
1: And if there's a shopping center today, I read those things cover to cover. With all the periodicals that come out in our business, there's always one or two pieces of good information that are great there. And I think the second thing is, when you walk into a store, walk into it like you built it, or that you're seeing it for the, the very first time from the perspective of, look at the details. Know that, I'm just gonna use this as an example, Five Below went from BCT to polished floors. And bring that up on your next call when you have with them. Because those people will remember the details. They don't- That is incredible detail. I know I'm starting learning
0: something by talking to you. That's unbelievable.
1: Devil's in the details. Be more that you can separate yourself from the others of just making a random call, the better off you are. Finding a personal connection with somebody is the game changer.
0: What's one book that changed your life? You talked about reading.
1: Go-Giver. i have read it down. But it's already on my list. And a short synopsis, as much as you think that your philosophy is proprietary, it's not. There's no secret sauce to just your philosophy. Share what you know, and the benefit from you sharing is tenfold coming back. And I've tried to live that more and more of, hey, whether it be a friend of mine who recently lost their job, I have a thing where I always send a baby gift when you have a baby, and I always show up to a funeral. Those are two points in your life where it's a momentous and probably the saddest portion of your life. So
0: give more than you get. Love that. You know I'm asking it. You've had time to think about it. You've listened to the other episodes so far. You're how old? 38. 38. So you're going to be in the business at least another 70, 80 years if I do guess. <laughs> so I smile on my eyes. And as I said before, and I still believe this with every ounce of my soul, you and Ian are going to build, along with, them, incredible, with the incredible other guys that you have there, we're going to build something serious there. Not that the location isn't serious already, but build it to whatever you want it to become and be. And when... The weekly ICS thing comes out whenever you decide to leave the business by choice or by force one day. There's going to be an article written about you because of the impact you've made in the business. What do you want that article to say? I.e., what do you want your legacy to be like in this business? And I know this is an impactful question to you because this is your hobby, this is your passion.
1: And back to it before, I think the way you treat people is so key going in this business. And to be known as, a straight shooter, good person, who's also helped other people of whether it be retailers or guys within my own organization. I want to strive to to be that mentor that I sought out so heavily when my career started to change. And there's also the philosophy of I've lived in St. Louis my entire life. I love seeing people be successful, opening a new business. I love feeding off of other people's success. So continuing that legacy and seeing that go forward with not only myself but location is hopefully where
0: we end up. I believe you'll get there. I'm excited to be along for the ride as someone who's relatively pretty close to your age and planning to do this for quite some time. Scott. You've exceeded my expectations, which I know were, which luckily for your sake were pretty low. No, I'm kidding. You were everything and more that I think we all wanted to hear. Really appreciate your time, really appreciate your passion and everything that you've done to impact not only the communities of these towns all over the Heartland states and really across the central third of the country, but just as if not importantly, the the people that you would back every day in this business and everyone who looks up to you both, that gets a lot of exposure to you and, and those who are being introduced to for the first time by listening to Limitless. So we appreciate it. Thank you so much. And as usual, let me know what I can do to be of help to you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Anytime, Thanks for listening to Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did, in fact, get some value out of it, Let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts.